Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, as Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount, we read, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to be to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has presented us with models for giving, for prayer, for fasting, money, and trust. Jesus has spoken about how not to pray in verses 5 and 7 and 8. And how to pray in verses 6 and verses 9 through 13. Now Jesus will tell us how not to fast. And how to fast. Giving, praying, fasting are all physical activities With spiritual benefits. You can give to God and you can pray to God and you can fast for God with right motives and with wrong motives. Some are hypocrites, Jesus points out. They disfigure their faces to show that they're fasting in verse 16. Some are humble. They brush their teeth, they comb their hair, they wash their face. But Jesus reminds them that God understands what's going on on the inside and not just the outside. And remember, this is the theme of the message. Jesus is constantly reminding us that the reality of what it means to have a right relationship with God and to be Christians isn't just the external observations of showing up at church, at having a Bible, at going through religious rituals. Fasting has become a part of religious traditions all over the world. In ancient times, certain people believed that demons could invade your body via food. Today, we typically don't so much worry about demons, but rather genetic modifications and bluebell ice cream recalls because of listeria. And yes, I got the note. And I got to tell you, I love bluebell ice cream. And so you can imagine, rather than face listeria, I marched back to King Supers and turned in my bluebell ice cream. Now, if like me, you've traveled around the world, uh, there are some countries where you really do have to worry about contaminated water. And you really do have to worry about contaminated food. When I was in India, I was involved in a pastor's conference. And in the pastor's conference, they had an outdoor barbecue. And I saw all of my brothers and sisters eating the Indian food. And I thought, well, you know, the Bible says they can be eaten with joy and, and grace and thanksgiving. And I prayed my prayer and I ate the food. And when I saw the natives starting to throw up, I knew that I was in big trouble. And it was true, I was in big trouble. I got amoebic poisoning. And I couldn't eat for the next 
five days. I lost 15 pounds in five days. Became completely dehydrated. And you've got to understand something that, that in that particular culture and in that particular society, when you are exposed to that kind of contamination, you can see how it can have a profound effect on you. In Eastern religions, in Native American religions, people go on prolonged fasts in order to receive visions or dream dreams. In modern America, people go on cleansing fasts for optimum health or for the perfect body. As Islam becomes more and more influential, more and more Americans become aware of the feast called Ramadan. It falls on the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. And the Muslims, like the Jews, are on a lunar calendar. And so the ninth month of the Muslim calendar usually winds up falling late August and sometimes September. It's supposed to commemorate the first revelation of Allah to Muhammad. And the fast lasts from dawn to dusk, according to the clerics, when it is light enough to distinguish a white thread from a black thread until sunset, unquote. Bathing, drinking, smoking, smelling perfumes and fragrances, eating, every unnecessary indulgence is forbidden. Nurses and pregnant women are excused as well as the sick. Soldiers are allowed to eat, but they have to make up for the fast at a future date. If a person remains sick, he or she may give alms to the poor to make up for the time. And by the way, in the ancient Jewish customs were almost the same. The Jewish fast would last from dawn to dusk. Now the Bible is silent concerning fasting for practical reasons or health reasons. Fasting in the Bible is always concerned with a spiritual activity. It's always related to some relationship with God. And many characters in the Bible fasted. Moses, Samson, Samuel, David, Daniel, Hannah, Ezra, Esther. The list could go on and on. In the New Testament, we find John the Baptist and his disciples fasting. We find Jesus fasting, Paul fasting, and, and others in church history, Luther writes about it, Calvin writes about it, Wesley and Whitfield write about fasting. And during the time of Christ, in the first century, there was truly only one mandatory fast. The mandatory fast fell on the Day of Atonement. That's found in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29, where the Bible says, This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you will afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you, it says, Afflicting the soul, by the way, is a Hebrew expression. The affliction of the soul meant to deny yourself food or to deny yourself some normal pleasure. But it was more than just the denial of food and the act of self-denial. It was embracing a time of 
reflection, prayer, meditation, and the searching of the scriptures. John MacArthur writes, That was a national fast that included every man, every woman, and every child in Israel. But it occurred one time a year, and then only as an integral part of the Day of Atonement, unquote. So the Jewish scribes said, quote, It is forbidden to eat. It is forbidden to drink. It is forbidden to bathe or anoint yourself or to wear sandals or indulge in marital relations. And what you have to understand is, again, what the religious leaders would often do is they would go beyond the scriptures. And so as you can imagine, in their way of thinking, they're thinking, if God wants us to afflict our souls once a year, and he likes that, well, then he must really like it if we do it twice a year. Well, forget twice a year. Why don't we do it 10 times a year? Forget 10 times a year. Why don't we do it once a week? Forget once a week. If, it's, if we do it twice a week, that's got to make God ecstatic. But is that true? Not necessarily. But Jesus, in the culture in which he lives, now you begin to understand. He says in verse 16, look nice. In verse 16, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Remember the Lord condemned hypocritical prayer. Now the Lord condemns hypocritical fasting. And again, maybe we should stop again just for a moment and ask ourselves, what does Jesus and what does the Bible seem to mean when it talks about fasting? Again, in the broadest sense of the term, it means to refrain from eating or some other activity. In the Bible, the fast wasn't simply refraining from food or the activity, but it was pursuing the Lord. We deny the flesh in order to feed the spirit. In Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 6, we read, On a fast day, you shall read the words of the Lord. So Jeremiah says it's not good enough to just simply refrain from having food. You must actively engage in some sort of spiritual activity. So the Lord is referencing the religious leaders who fasted, but they're fasting to be seen by men. Can you imagine... Well, I'll get to that in just a moment. They would fast according to the tradition. The scribes and the Pharisees and others would fast on Monday. And they would fast on Thursday. And Monday and Thursday in the ancient culture were those days where most people did their shopping. And they ran their errands in the marketplace. And ladies... When is the worst time in the world to go shopping? When you're hungry. That's exactly right. So imagine you're pushing your cart through the ancient version of King Supers, and all of a sudden you come across a person and they look absolutely horrible. What's going on? I haven't eaten anything in three days. Oh, trust me, food still tastes the same. Now... Craig Keener, who writes about Bible customs 
in antiquity says, and I quote, during at least the dry seasons, many of the pious people fasted without water, though this was very unhealthy, two particular days a week. This fasting was considered meritorious, which means brownie points in heaven, as if in order to impress God or have favor with God. Although ascetic fasting, and ascetic fasting is beating down the flesh or afflicting your body, if you will. And in the Bible and in the Jewish culture, this was forbidden. In other words, this, this was not the reason for fasting. Jewish fasting required abstinence, not only from food, but from other pleasures, which would, again, usually um, include the practice of anointing your head with oil in order to prevent dry skin. Avoiding all these practices made fasting obvious, according to Keener. So some people wouldn't comb their hair. Some people wouldn't brush their teeth. Some people would literally put on soiled garments so that people would go, hey, I couldn't help but noticing that you're fasting. And sometimes they would even put on makeup so that they would look like extras in some zombie apocalypse movie where they're just looking, you know, beat up and, and worn. So Jesus affirms fasting He says, moreover, when you fast, but he condemns fasting for all the wrong reasons. In ancient times, as well as modern times, some people would use this as a ploy in order to get God's attention. Now, many of you are parents and you have children, and some of you know that children will sometimes use food to manipulate you. Imagine you sit down, you've cooked them a meal, and they go, I'm not eating. Well, why aren't you eating? I don't want to. And why don't you want to? Because you're not letting me do this, or you're not letting me do that, or you're not letting me do this, and you're not letting me do that. Now, again, parents, is this a good way to manipulate you? Some of you say yes, and some of you say no. The Italian people say yes, because when you have an Italian grandmother, she goes, you sit down, you eat, okay? No, I'm not going to eat. Oh, what's the matter? Hey, what's the matter? And so, again, she's willing to do whatever you want in order to get you to eat. And so sometimes we translate that into our spiritual relationship with God as if we can manipulate God by refraining from eating. But that's not, again, the point of the passage. The other idea is that in ancient times as well as modern times, people would think that only the truly spiritual, only the truly dedicated man or woman would deprive themselves of food in order to either get God's attention or in order to get a special favor or to get a a special prayer request. Another reason people fasted were to try to prove to God their sorrow or their sincere repentance for sin because they had done something wrong. And the problem, of course, is that the danger is that the proof of repentance could very easily soon become regarded as a substitute for repentance. And so some people would go without food to prove to God they were really sorry for what they had done and then the fasting became just an expression of the sorrow 
In other words, people would fast to prove how sorry they were, but pretty soon they fasted to prove how spiritual they were. And by the way, fasting can never serve as a genuine substitute for real repentance from sin. And then other people would fast on behalf of others. Remember, in this culture and society, if they had a wayward family member or friend or mother, father, brother, sister, and they would fast on their behalf, again, ordinary people won't fast. So again, the more spiritual a person allegedly was, they would obligate themselves to fast on on behalf of family members or friends, and they would find some support for that. For instance, in the book of Job, those of you who are familiar with the the book, you'll remember that Job would fast for his children and he would offer sacrifices for his children. But as he's fasting and sacrificing for his children, it isn't in order to ensure their spirituality, but Job would do it in order to remind himself and God of his deep love for his children. And so again, The idea was that they would make up for their carnality or go the extra mile on an extended fast. And if people fast in order to show how spiritual they are, Jesus is in effect saying, you're wasting your time. It has no value. You might lose physical weight, but you're not gaining any spiritual muscle. And so he then says... Look neat. In verse 17, it says, But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Jesus tells them that when you fast, make the extra effort to look normal. Now, for some of us, that's not even going to be possible. We'll always look a little different. But you understand the point. Jesus is saying, don't go out of your way to look bad. Put on your makeup, comb your hair, brush your teeth, put on deodorant, especially if you're in junior high school. You know, my pastor Chuck Smith would always be razzed. He would be asked constantly about ladies' hairdos and makeup and whether or not women could wear makeup. And Pastor Chuck would just simply say, if the barn needs painting, paint it. (laughs) And so the whole point becomes, hey, look, it's not a sin to look your best. Fasting, by the way, is mentioned some 30 times in the Greek New Testament. Always, almost always, in a favorable light. Again, when Jesus says, when you fast, the implication is that fasting is going to be a normal part of the spiritual discipline. It's going to be normal and acceptable. Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast on certain occasions. But Jesus doesn't spell out those occasions. There's a time for joy. There's a time for prayer. There's a time for reflection. There's a time when it's appropriate and there's a time when it's inappropriate. There are certain days that you should never fast. You should never, ever fast on Thanksgiving Day. That's just stupid. And so if you go, you know what? 
you go to the you know family Thanksgiving dinner and you go, I'm fasting for God. And there's the turkey and the ham and the dressing and all of that stuff. That's the wrong time. You don't fast on Thanksgiving Day. You don't fast on, on Christmas Day. You don't fast on the opening day of the Rockies. You just don't do that. There's a time to celebrate. And there's a time to refrain from celebrating. And so, in verse 18, it says, look normal. And look again, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The point of verse 18 is not to draw attention to yourself, either by outlandish outbursts of joy or making yourself to look, like I said, like a zombie extra in an apocalyptic movie. Now, some of us fast from color, but my wife doesn't believe in that. So she dresses me up like this. But sometimes, again, that's the point. You don't do this to draw attention to yourself. You don't do it in order to either garner the sympathy of human beings or the praises of, of, of people. If we are doing something to draw attention to ourselves or get the praise of people, we short-circuit whatever spiritual benefit might have accrued by fasting. So one way to impress God is to avoid impressing people. And that becomes part of the point. Genuine fasting is focused on the Lord. John MacArthur again says, this verse teaches that the Father never fails to notice fasting, that his heart felt and genuine, and that he will never fail to reward it. Now think about what we've learned so far in the Sermon on the Mount. Does God notice heartfelt giving? That you're giving not in order to get or to manipulate God. You're praying not in order to manipulate God. You're fasting not in order to manipulate God. But when you do this in secret, God rewards you openly. And so the big question becomes, should we fast? Should we fast today? And I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus assumes the fast. Note what it says in chapter 6, verse 2. When you give alms. Verse 5, when you pray. Verse 16, when you fast. The implication being, you're going to be generous. You're going to pray. You're going to deny your passions and your pleasure. You're going to sometimes say no to a particular thing in order to say yes to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken from them, then they will fast. And of course, that statement comes in the context of a group of disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, coming up to Jesus, asking Jesus why the disciples of John the Baptist engage in certain fasts, and the disciples of Jesus neglected those fasts. And Jesus said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
Again, there's a time for joy and celebration. You don't go to your daughter's wedding or your son's wedding and go, God's called me to a fast. No, that's not the time to fast. That's the time to celebrate. And so again, you have to use some of that common sense that God has given to you about when is it appropriate and when is it inappropriate. The days will come, Jesus said, when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they'll fast. There are seasons of rejoicing. There are seasons of mourning. And by the way, in the Bible, there were personal fasts and there were public fasts. In Joel chapter 2, verse 15, there was a time when the people were called to sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. In the book of Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, we read, I proclaimed a fast there so that we might humble ourselves before God. Our forefathers adopted that principle. Washington, Lincoln, even Woodrow Wilson and, and uh, FDR, Roosevelt. When we were at war, when we were in profound problems and deep difficulties, sometimes the nation's leaders would call on the nation and say, will you do the nation a favor? Will you refrain from some of your normal courses of action? Will you take the time to pray, reflect, meditate, and cry out to God? So it would appear that there were times of stress and there were times of pressure and there were times of anxiety and affliction. And so that in great need, they would pray and they would fast. And we see that in the New Testament when Peter and James are in prison. We see it right now of our family and friends and brothers and sisters all around the world who sometimes find themselves incarcerated in Somalia, Saeed Abedini in Iran, um, our, our family and friends and brothers and sisters in Korea and China. It comes to our attention and we want them released. You can imagine if your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your pastor was in prison, I would hope that you would pray for me. And if you fast that meal that you skipped, just go, go to Chick-fil-A, get a gift card, and uh, bring it to me in jail, because hopefully I'll eventually make it out. <laughs> for the Christian, fasting isn't just a religious exercise or ritual. It would seem that it would be done when there were major life-changing decisions to be made. And you know, there have been a few times in my life where I've had what's called an extended fast. Where in order for me to get my head on straight and think biblically about what God would have for me, I would engage in an extended fast. I think the times, for instance, when I graduated from high school and I had to pick the place where I was going to go to college. I knew that that educational choice was going to change me forever. And I wanted to make a good choice. And I wanted to make a, a God-honoring right choice. When I met my, my, who was going to be my future wife, Mary, when I met her and I began to sense that maybe this was the person that God was calling me to spend the rest of my life with. And so I prayed that God would offer her evidence that I would be a good husband. Of course, that evidence never came. So thank God she didn't wait for evidence. 
But the truth is, when you're getting ready to make a major decision like that, maybe it calls for some focused reflection, concentrated prayer. And of course, when we would make major ministry decisions, when we decided we were going to move from California to Albuquerque, New Mexico, or from Albuquerque to the state of Colorado, sometimes when you're getting ready to embark on a bold new adventure, you cry out to God. And so, again, we don't just simply go without food. We deny ourselves in order to feed our spirit. And, and please note, the scriptures never treat fasting as some kind of mystical, heightened, super spiritual, altered state of conscience. Ancient Christian mystics, as well as some modern Christian leaders, claim that you can get special insight, or special awareness, or see angels, or hear voices, but that's not the point of fasting. There's a huge movement among people to engage in 40-day fasts. And I'm not suggesting even for a moment that if God calls you to such a fast that you're to decline such a thing. But remember that when Moses fasted for 40 days and when Jesus fasted for 40 days, they didn't just simply go without food. They also went without water. And I guarantee you, if you go without food and water for 40 days, you will die. And so there's got to be a really good reason. Because part of the point of fasting isn't to put yourself at risk. And so if you do plan on going on an extended fast, make sure that you talk with your doctor or someone who knows you well and what's going to be right or not right for you. And by the way, fasting isn't limited to food. For some of you, it's you put yourself at risk if you go without food. And so, again, I'm not suggesting in any way that you should somehow go, well, Gino's talked me into fasting. And, and, and again, if you have health issues that preclude you from fasting, well, then you have health issues that preclude you from fasting. But, but remember, there's other things that you can do without. Can you do without your television for an hour? Can you do without your radio for an hour? Can you do without your computer for an hour? Can you do without your game console for an hour? Whatever you do and, or whatever you don't do, here's the point that Jesus is making. Don't draw attention to yourself. Do it quietly. Do it specifically. Do it as you seek the Lord. Not because you're seeking some sort of mystical satisfaction. And so we fast, but we fast for direction. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, people fasted when they desired wisdom from God and direction from God. Moses fasted in preparation for revelation. Daniel fasted when he was waiting on God and the word of God in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus fasts for 40 days before beginning his ministry and, being, and facing great temptation. When the nation of Israel was threatened by her enemies, King Jehoshaphat proclaimed a national fast in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3. And again, you have to understand the context. Part of the context were that the Moabites and the Ammonites were threatening the people. And they weren't just threatening the people. They seemed like an insurmountable adversary. And sometimes you might feel threatened. 
in your family life. Maybe you felt threatened in the past because someone that you love or you yourself have been caught up in some sort of addictive behavior or some sort of addictive kind of stuff and you've got enemies that are pressing in on you. And it never ever occurred to you that maybe God was calling you not only to provide direction, but discipline so that you could give up one thing in order to have another thing and experience the deliverance of God. Queen Esther, her servants, and the Jews in the city of Susa fasted for three days as she went to go plead her case before the king of the Persians for the Jews to be spared from the plot of Haman. And sometimes when we see threats, that's the appropriate time to fast and pray. By the way, does fasting clarify your thinking? I think it does. You may have attempted to fast in the past and all you could think about was food. Okay, I'm going to fast today. And your stomach goes, oh no, that's a mistake. Oh, that's the wrong thing to do. By the time you get to lunch, your stomach is growling. It is insanely trying to pressure you to not fast. But by the way, again, the focus isn't just simply on the deprivation of what's happening. The the whole point becomes you are denying your flesh so that you can say yes to your spirit. You'll remember when Jesus was hungry and he sent the disciples to go get food when he was sitting with the woman at the well. They said, Jesus, have you eaten? And he said, I have food that you don't know anything about. And the truth is, you'll rarely be able to say yes to God or yes to Jesus or yes to the Holy Spirit if you're constantly saying yes to your passions and your desires and and your needs. John Corson writes, physiologists tell us that when there's no food in the stomach, there's greater blood flow to the brain. You can actually think clearer when you're not digesting burgers and fries and shakes. Once you overcome those first pangs of hunger, your thinking processes are more focused and clearer than ever. On the other hand, if you have two Whoppers, four cheeseburgers, all you want to do is sleep. And he's right. Your blood will flow to your stomach to digest the food. Most people are governed by their passions, their feelings, even their reason. It was Helen Keller who said, the best and most beautiful things in the world can't be seen. They can't even be touched. They have to be felt with the heart. And you see, if your life is simply preoccupied with what you see and what you want, then the chances are you're going to be in trouble. In the normal course of life, we all experience a measure of depression or oppression. We're all troubled at work or at school. We may find ourselves in the grip of some reoccurring problem. But here becomes part of the point. Fasting like prayer becomes a weapon in your spiritual arsenal. Giving and prayer and fasting become now a tool in order to help you in the most difficult of times. If you say no to your stomach, it does no good to say yes to Jesus 
unless you're willing to do what Jesus wants you to do. And if you say no to your stomach and refuse to say yes to Jesus, then you're dieting. And that's okay. I'm not suggesting that you refrain from certain kinds of food habits in order to experience health benefits. But what I'm saying is, if you're biblically fasting, you're denying the flesh in order to feed the spirit. And if you miss a physical meal, plan on consuming a spiritual one. You may want to skip lunch. And have a private place and a private time with the word of God. You might want to feast on Philippians or snack on Philemon. Or have a healthy, wholesome portion of the Psalm of David. So we fast for discipline. We fast for direction. We fast for liberation. Most people, again, are governed governed by their passions and feelings. But fasting can help us refrain from being slaves to certain things or certain people or certain habits. And for the person who says, I'm in the habit of eating three times a day. Forget that. I'm in the habit of eating five times a day. Skipping a meal won't kill you. Anatomically, physiologically, nutritionally, it usually takes about 30 days for you to actually starve to death. But I'm not, again, suggesting even for a moment that if your doctor, if the medical professional in your life says, guess what, you have a health condition that isn't, that, that that's not good for you, then you might think about another thing that you can do that will deny yourself so that you can feed your spirit you know, what, what really is essential? And the truth is, the more that you can live without, the freer your life becomes. When all things become essential, when good things and expensive things and lavish things and winning teams and winning elections and craving certain pleasures, when meeting the demands of our mind and our heart and our flesh become the thing that preoccupy us, guess what? Then we will remain spiritually and developmentally at risk. When luxury becomes necessity, then we're in bondage. Fasting, like I said, isn't limited to food. It could include some other thing. It might be your car. It might be your television. It might be the internet. It might be the game console. How many of you can go shopping? You walk into the shopping. You go to the place wherever it is that you're going. You see the item and you point at it and you say, I can live without you. And then you turn around and you walk away. It's healthy to do that every once in a while. And by the way, fasting can create a genuine appreciation for what you do have. One of the great ways to appreciate what you have is to go without. Have you ever spent the night on a park bench? Or in a public place? Have you ever rummaged through a dumpster to find food that's been thrown away by people who are well fed? You know what I hope? I hope you never have to live that way. I hope you never spend the night underneath a bridge. I hope you never have to go dumpster diving. But guess what? If you ever, ever, ever have to do something like that. Then you'll you'll begin to appreciate what you do have. Remember, there are two kinds of fasting, intentional 
unintentional, disciplined, volitional, and unvolitional. You might find yourself in a hospital. You might find yourself in deep difficulty where you have to drink instant breakfast through a straw for nine weeks. It was Barclay who wrote, it may be that there was a time in life when some pleasure came so seldom that we really enjoyed it when it did come. When I read that, I thought about growing up in the Mojave Desert. I thought about the one time that we got to go to the El Rancho Theater, maybe once every month, we got to go to the movies. Do you remember when it was the absolute biggest treat of your life where you got to go out to a restaurant and eat somewhere? For some of you, you understand that. Barclay writes, It may be nowadays that the appetite is blunted, the palate dulled, the edge has gone off. What was once a sharp pleasure has now become a a drug which we can't do without. Fasting keeps the thrill in pleasure by keeping pleasure always fresh and new, unquote. We fast for, for, for direction. We fast for provision. We fast for protection. But sometimes we fast for appreciation. You know, I seldom meet Christians who fast. Jesus condemned wrong fasting. But I don't think either Jesus or the New Testament meant to eliminate fasting altogether. So why fast? Well, for the person who never requires direction... For the person who never requires discipline, for the person who never requires liberation or appreciation, you never will fast. We don't fast to impress each other. We don't fast to manipulate God. We don't fast to have power over God or to pressure God. The object of fasting is always to draw close to the Lord. To discern his will and to appropriate his power, to clarify our thinking and a willingness to discern the principles in the Bible that lead to good decision making. We fast in special times of testing, trial. You know, when David fasted, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he pleaded for the life of the child that was conceived in disobedience. And in that circumstance, David's fast did not change God's judgment. And it did not change God's decision. But it did change David's perspective. You know, David fasted when Abner died in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 35. David fasted when the things that he loved and he cared about were at risk. And David fasted when he was in danger. And David fasted when he knew that he needed help. In Psalm 35, 13, David writes, When they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. And my prayer kept turning into my bosom. It was his way of saying that his prayers 
provided for him a means of reflection as he considered what God would and wouldn't do. And if you decide to skip a meal, if you decide to skip a few meals or certain pleasures, just remember to pray. Remember to open up your Bible. Remember to reflect and meditate on God's goodness. On a TV show, there was a small boy who was asked if he had any pets. Well, he said, I did have some goldfish, but some water softener got into the aquarium and they softened to death. When I heard that, I thought about this passage and this message. So often because of self-indulgence and laziness and indifference and lack of self-discipline, our spiritual muscles become soft and flabby and we fall easy prey to temptation, to sin, to discouragement. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, in his sermon on this passage he wrote do you fast give me proof by your works if you see a poor man take pity on him if you see a friend being honored do not envy him do not let your mouth fast but also the eye and the ear and the feet and the hands and all the members of your body let the hands fast by being free of avarice and avarice is a word that we don't use in our culture and society anymore avarice is an unhealthy greed it's an unhealthy preoccupation with material gain Chrysostom says, let the feet fast by ceasing to run after sin. Let the eyes fast by disciplining them not to glare at that which is sinful. Let the ear fast for what is good. For what is good is if we, if we abstain from birds and fishes. But, or he says, what good is it if we abstain from birds and fishes but bite and devour each other? Chrysostom writes, May he, Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners, strengthen us and complete the fast with humility and mercy and salvation. And I love that. Because again, here's what he's saying. It isn't just simply refusing to eat. It's reminding yourself that you can celebrate in a feast. A spiritual feast. And so perhaps it's time to feast on the spiritual disciplines. We give. We pray. We fast. In what sense? We deny the flesh in order to feed the spirit. And when you do it, remember what Jesus says. Do it for all the right reasons, with the right heart, with the right motive, with the right attitude, so that you'll experience the real benefit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you. Lord, what an amazing, eye-opening passage. That, Lord, we can deny our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet. 
And we can allow our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our mouth to speak those things that are edifying, encouraging, gracious. Lord, we pray that we would be reminded that it does no good to deny ourselves or to refrain from something if we're not willing to do something so much better. And so again, Father, we pray that you would remind us, that you would free us, that you would encourage us, that you would mature us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.